0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Russia has officially launched its invasion on Ukraine, with many saying it's a full-scale war. What's happening next? Well, get into that. And regardless of your views on the trucker convoy in Ottawa, the protest has hurt the working class the most. An op-ed says that we're the ones who are going to be picking up the tab. Prime Minister, of course, has revoked the Emergencies Act just a couple of days after it passes. We'll talk about the ramifications of that. And hybrid work is here to stay, and if it's done right, it could transform the labor market and the economy of Canada. That's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, of course, obviously the story that, uh, that everyone is talking about is the invasion of Ukraine by Russian troops uh, and uh, the implications of that. It's not a surprise, I guess, to most of us. We've been talking about this for weeks now as the uh, Russian troops uh, were gathering on the the, sh- the borders of Ukraine for quite some time. And uh, we a matter of when, I mean, the Biden administration has been telling us for about the last 10 days or so that an invasion was imminent, uh, although Putin and, and his cro- crowd rather in in Moscow were saying, no, we're not going to invade. Uh, and we, I think we all know the uh, the principles here about NATO and, and about Putin not wanting Ukraine to be in NATO. Uh, the overriding element of this whole situation that we're going to get into in a couple of seconds here are Putin's long-term goals. Uh, What does he want to do with Ukraine? Is this an attempt, as many experts are suggesting, uh, to simply, I guess, bring back his old Soviet Union? I mean, many of these uh, nations uh, that, uh, well, Crimea being among them, Belarus and, of course, Ukraine, uh, were once part of the Soviet Union, USSR. uh, And Putin, I think, longs for those days, and it seems to be working toward that end. So uh, G7 leaders have responded, and NATO has responded, of course, to the invasion. And uh, today's virtual meeting of G7 leaders is going to focus on what happens next. Initially, when they planned this meeting, uh, it was to talk about, well, what can they do to prevent this sort of thing from happening? Clearly, the agenda has changed now because of uh, the Russian actions and incursions. So what actions will be taken? Although it's uh, initially arranged with the intention of resolving crisis, now it's a matter of trying to wonder, do we get involved in this from a military standpoint? Uh, Do we just uh, try to impose more serious sanctions on this? Our Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, was quick to condemn Russia's actions and says there will be consequences. Global's Tina Trajani has some details for us.
1: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Russia's reckless and dangerous acts will not go unpunished. Consequences include imposing additional sanctions. Earlier this week, he announced Canada would be sending over 450 additional Canadian Armed Forces members to Latvia and the surrounding area in order to bolster NATO's presence. Trudeau says G7 leaders will also work with allies to collectively respond to the situation. It is. Trudeau says Canada condemns in the strongest possible terms Russia's egregious attack on Ukraine, which is in clear violation of Russia's obligations under international law as well as the Charter of the United Nations. He's pushing for President Vladimir Putin to pull all military from Ukraine and cease all hostile and provocative actions. Trudeau says he continues to stand with Ukraine, its people and the Ukrainian-Canadian community here. Tina Trajani, Global News
0: so what are the implications and and what if anything can the G7 or for that matter NATO or anyone else do to try to stop this action uh, to talk about this please to welcome back to the program professor oral brown who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the monk school of global affairs at the university of toronto uh, professor thank you on a very busy day I appreciate your time today good morning there was a certain i guess in some people's minds anyway professor inevitability that of, uh, about this occasion were you so I don't know that too many people are surprised about what Russia did, but were you surprised with the enormity with which they've 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 begun this invasion?
2: this is what uh, uh, has surprised uh, many of us uh, that it is not just that uh, they decided to move but the extent of the move that they have attacked cities uh, throughout Ukraine and that Mr. Putin has declared really unlimited goals when he said that he wants to see the denazification of ukraine and given that uh, mr putin always keeps going back to the great patriotic war which was fought against the nazis by portraying ukraine and its leadership as nazis this is an open-ended threat so we do not know how far he is prepared to go
0: and, and therein lies the problem. I mean, you know, when, when the statements were made over the weekend uh, about uh, basically recognizing the two, what he called, uh, eastern states uh, that, that he considered to be under attack by the, by the Ukraine army and the Ukraine government, uh, we figured, okay, there's going to be an incursion. In fact, I guess some of the uh, intelligence has showed us that the Russians were already there. Uh, But we pretty much thought, I guess, it was going to start in the east. And as you mentioned, uh, this is a very strategic uh, operation right now, going after military targets and after cities. I mean, I know that Putin said in his address last night that uh, they have no intention of harming uh, citizens uh, in in this situation. This is truly a a strike against military operations. Uh, But I I guess everybody says that when they go into a military incursion like this. But the casualties are inevitable, aren't they?
2: And there have been casualties uh, already in uh, the case of ukraine there may be casualties among uh, russian forces as well they have been attacking from the north from the east and from the south so this is an all-encompassing kind of uh, move on the part of russia and then the other kind of threat that uh, vladimir putin made which was that if any of the western countries intervene to help the ukrainians defend themselves they would suffer consequences in these words that you have never anticipated in history. And that sounds almost like a nuclear threat. And that's where Russia is actually a superpower with nuclear weapons. Otherwise, by no stretch of the imagination is Russia a superpower. They are certainly able to invade and in military defeat Ukraine and all our conflict, but uh, they are not the Soviet Union. Uh, but in nuclear weapons, they can threaten the world. So that uh, combined with this idea that he wants to denazify uh, uh, Ukraine makes this far more, far more open-ended. And so we have to see how far he goes because obviously he seems to look for weakness and he can't uh, apparently uh, resist the temptation of, of weakness. Uh, I wonder how history will look the Biden administration when uh, uh, Mr. Putin already declared that he was going to recognize uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, states which are rebel-controlled by are fundamental proxies of Russia and that is a prelude to annexation same as it was in Crimea and Mr. Biden said, well, we're instituting really tough sanctions but if you invade further and this already is an invasion, we will have even tougher sanctions. So this is almost kind of multi Python diplomacy. And uh, let me make it very clear that Mr. Putin is responsible for what has happened. He is the aggressor. But I do not think history will be kind to Mr.
0: Biden. Well, uh, as, as I think we, and we, you and I in a previous conversation uh, referenced the Neville Chamberlain situation to try to stop Hitler, and I know it, it's not a, a total apples-to-apples to apples comparison, uh, but, but, you know, there are some some parallels in what's going on here, uh, especially in this situation here. Uh, you know, Putin seems to understand force uh, and it doesn't seem to understand diplomacy. It doesn't much care for diplomacy in situations like this. Uh, and, and the Biden administration, I guess, was trying to do, you know, what they considered to be the right thing. Uh, but is, is there a, a, a meeting at G7? We know that today. Is there a chance right now? That they may decide okay maybe we are going to have to look at some sort of military action here
2: mr biden has already excluded the possibility of mm-hmm. any military action within ukraine and at one level one can understand that uh, uh, given the reality on the ground this would be imprudent and that this can lead to uh uh you know unlimited uh, escalation and it is at any rate, too late now, with Russia having taken these steps. But what is very puzzling is why did he need to state that openly? Why would he signal to the Russians that uh, you will not face uh, a military confrontation? You uh, can act uh, without having to be concerned by that. You are only to go going to face sanctions, which historically have not been particularly effective in most instances. And these are sanctions for which Mr. Putin has had many months to prepare because he has signaled his intentions of doing harm to Ukraine for many months. So it's not as if the West hadn't been warned. But uh, Mr. Biden wanted to have unity among the Europeans. Um, And unity, unfortunately, seemed to have been coming closer to the German approach of doing virtually nothing and protecting cheap energy and profits rather than uh, helping Ukraine. So Ukraine was starved of uh, the weapons that it needed to defend itself. Ukraine was not asking that Western countries send military forces within Ukraine to defend them. They were pleading for countries, including Canada, please give us the weapons so we can defend ourselves. And we did not do that. Uh, There was a trickle coming from the United States. It started in the previous administration. There was none during the Obama-Biden administration for eight years, and then uh, in the case of Canada, we opened up a tiny trickle, uh, under $8 million uh, in the past week and a half, uh, uh, when Ukraine needed sort of uh, a large-scale uh, supplies of defensive weapons, whether it was anti-tank, anti-aircraft, command and control things. We did not uh, uh, do that. So, uh Mr. Putin was very fortunate in his opponents. Uh, uh, There was uh, in NATO a kind of uh, defeatism, which has led to defeat. And what we have to understand is that NATO deterrence has failed. And how do we know that? Because Russia's not in there. If deterrence had worked, Russia would not have attacked.
0: Well, and and to your point, uh, I mean, even if there is going to be some effectiveness with the the, the sanctions that they're talking about, that's going to take weeks or even months uh, to to materialize. Uh, This conflict uh, and and the incursion into Ukraine is going to be long over by then. So he's one way or another. Putin's going to get what he wants out of this, isn't he?
2: He is getting what he wants. The question is whether he will overreach because NATO has really played this kind of helpless giant. This is the most powerful military political alliance in history, facing uh, not a superpower but a remnant of a superpower, and uh, it has allowed itself to be bullied, negotiated with a gun to its head. Uh, And so from a tactical perspective, uh, Mr. Putin has done extremely well. And if he just settles for those two regions, I doubt that uh, uh, the challenges will be so strong that would force him to move out. However. If he proceeds with this idea of denazification—that is, uh, that he wants to change the government in Putin uh, in in, in, in Kiev—he wants to have a compliant government, uh, or called a you know an outside puppet Russian government. Uh, if his ambitions then uh, uh, escalate further by making new demands on NATO, he could, uh, uh, in a sense, solidify the uh, uh, alliance and. Uh, uh have you know uh not to mix metaphors the sleeping giant uh, wake up uh and that could lead to unpredictable escalation or it could lead to some really negative consequences uh for uh, for russia even if there's no military con- uh, uh confrontation because you could have a much more powerful nato one that uh, would uh, uh really be able to confront uh Russia in the future. You may have new NATO members coming in, whether it's uh, Finland or Sweden, that are deeply alarmed at the uh, uh, Russian move. So a great deal can happen. And uh, Mr. Putin generally, has been behaving in a cautious fashion. And I think even now, uh, I think it would be a mistake to say that he is reckless. I think we have to look at how feckless the western response has been so far i mean just think about it that mr biden first of all made a statement some weeks ago well uh if there's a modern incursion then we don't know how we react because uh there may be differences of opinion among the alliance but if there's an invasion of course that would be different and then he declared a couple of days ago yes there's an invasion and we're going to hit them with sanctions but not the toughest sanctions uh we will hit him if you cross the next line and this is monty python diplomacy Uh, it would be if it was not so tragic it would border on the comic
0: sadly it is tragic and and i know we're just about out of time here but your point about strategy i think is well taken um you know he is he is not reckless at all he's he's laid the groundwork for this hasn't he professor i mean you know germany and france have essentially been taken out of this i mean because they both have economic ties to russia uh and they don't want to step on his toes Uh, And the United States clearly doesn't want to move to to take that extreme measure with military action here. So it's it's going to be sanctions, and that's about as tough as things are going to get. So uh, we'll be watching. The G7, as we mentioned, are going to be having a Zoom meeting, I guess, later on this morning, and uh, we'll certainly track that and see what's going on. Professor, on a very busy day and a very important day, I thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Earl Brown uh, from, of course, uh, Global Affairs Department at University of Toronto. More to come on this, and we'll keep an eye on what's happening over there and the uh, subsequent meetings, of course, from world leaders. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Things are uh, changing in Ottawa considerably, of course, uh, since the events of last weekend. And uh, the city seems to be getting back to some sense of normal, all the way around Parliament Hill. It's going to take a little bit of time. Uh, but one of the other things that's happening is that people are starting to uh, actually add things up and the cost of uh, what happened there for almost three and a half weeks. Uh, and there's a great op-ed piece uh, in the uh, the Star that talked about this, too, basically suggesting that we're all going to be on the hook for this uh, in one way or another. Uh, joining us to talk about this is the author of the piece, Armin and of course, is an economist at Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers. Uh, Armin, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days.
1: I am. And thanks very much for inviting me back, Bill.
0: I saw a comment on social media. This was just as this was going on last weekend from obviously somebody who was supportive of uh, what the protest uh, protesters were doing. Uh, and they used the phrase, they said, this is a victimless protest. Uh, judging from the numbers that you, you wrote in the op-ed piece, here <laughs> we're all victims of this.
1: Well, well, we will all pay, whether you support the protesters or you yeah. disagree with their protest. That was my only point. And the reason I wrote it, Bill, is because I think... We're heading into an era of profound discontent that is sometimes being whipped up. It's kind of like astroturf populism in that it's not bona fide grassroots discontent. But the more people get discontented, the more they are going to act out and protest. And I just wanted to show that it costs everybody when we can't figure out how to talk to one another, when we feel that we are forced into the street uh, to and make then our we've point.
0: talked. We've talked, you know, as this was occurring, of course, uh, about the, the psychological impact this was having on people that live down there. And I, that's incalculable, I guess, to a certain extent, because we don't know just, you know, how long term those those impacts are going to be on these people. It's much easier, though, that to start putting a dollars and cents uh, uh, perspective on this, though, isn't it? I mean, lost hours of work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those numbers are astounding.
1: Yeah. I felt like somebody needed to do a, okay, this is costing us, you know, $785,000 every day in policing. Wait a minute. What about the people that couldn't get to work? You know, unlike a pipeline protest bill, this isn't just affecting investors or shareholders' returns. This is infecting, affecting people's ability to survive. Um, in some cases, for those who were literally blockaded downtown especially vulnerable people, they couldn't even get access to food without being monstered on the streets. And if they didn't have somebody to go out for them, they were stuck because nobody could do things like meals on wheels. Nobody could do delivery. it It's just been, um, as you said, incalculable for those type of um, losses. But when it comes to being able to make a guesstimate, On how many people were prevented from going to work and what that meant to wages, I did a very conservative estimate of about $265 million for the 24 days, uh, just for the people that couldn't get into the work sites in the blockaded area. So it is quite expensive, in addition to which we know just one one mall, Rideau Centre, was losing $3 million a day in lost sales. That isn't including all the other things, all their overhead costs, all the things they had to pay, plus lost sales. So, you know, we are not doing ourselves a favor if we don't think about the economic consequences, but it's certainly not all of it is calculable
0: but but therein lies the problem uh and we you know i know I, I, we saw the numbers about what rito place and and some from time to time of course through the weekend watching the coverage the extensive coverage uh, about the the action to finally clear this thing up uh they they did talk to shop, shop shop owners who have some have not been able to open at all others have been open up and have been intimidated and are afraid of anybody walking through the door but as, as the, most of them said though we're never going to get this money back. I mean, this is gone. It's lost. I mean, you know, we can have a sale and the Doritos place can open up and, you know, but you're not going to lose or get that money back. That's gone. And this, I mean, think of the timing and you talked about this in the piece. Uh, these are businesses that have been struggling for the last two years uh, because mm-hmm. of the pandemic and because of some of the lockdowns. Uh, and now this is another punch in the gut to these people.
1: hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I'm kind of still stuck on the incalculable part because this didn't just this wasn't just an occupation of one part of the country, uh, which we've never seen before. You know, you know that you get like worker strikes that shut off, you know, a couple of blocks or maybe the entry to a place, but this is actually shutting down a measurable part of a city. Uh, but the one of the most incalculable parts is the shutdowns on the borders, where. I think we lost somewhere between 3 and $6 billion of trade per day in goods. And the incalculable part of that is that the United States is now saying we're not, there are people in the United States that are now saying we are not a reliable trading partner, which kind of feeds the whole nationalist America first. Let's do it for ourselves. You can't count on anybody else. Like there's all these um, pressures to do this me first thing thing, which is in part what the convoy was about. It was like my body myself, which by the way, as a feminist, (laughs) I found passing strange that these Mostly I, had, I, older, to, I wondered
0: about that how do you feel that they they basically co-opted that line and made it there no
1: kidding right like i'm'm a, I'm, I'm a feminist from way back there was a book called my body uh, you know our bodies ourselves uh that, that was literally about my body my choice from the 1960s and 70s that's where the feminist movement came from and here's these mostly older white males who are angry to be told that they can't do everything they want to do. It was just passing strange to have that language of uh, feminism appropriated by these libertarians, um, which is how I perceive them. I know there are legitimate complaints that some people have. So I'm not going to dismiss what some parts of this protest was about. But like I say, it's an astro. it was an astroturf protest it was funded with deep pockets from elsewhere and it was designed to make people feel enraged um, and a lot of people joined up because it it looked like a party to some people with the bouncy castles and the hot tubs and the you know peaceful protest come down with your kids it was like it was gar- garbage messaging but what it did was and its point was to try and delegitimate the vaccine mandates vaccines in general and a, a democratically elected government from per, per, uh, it was so messed up in terms of jurisdiction i can't even begin to talk about that but the goal was to shut down the nation's capital and it did so for three weeks that and is replaced the
0: government problematic. i know they backed away from that but i mean even the weekend there were you know the police were in there i mean there were still people over were saying yeah we, we want trudeau out i mean that you saw the signs uh, with the F Trudeau and on and on and on, it went like that. And, oh and I, God, I Bill, listen. I've heard, you know, I, and I'm sure you've heard, Armin, over the last couple of weeks. Says, oh, that's not what I was there for. I just, you know, I just I don't like to. Yeah. But I said, you know what? You judge by the company you keep. Those people 100%. were there. You knew they were there. You saw what they were doing. And you didn't disassociate yourself. You figured, hey, if gonna, these guys are causing this kind of, 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 of turmoil, that's good. And so you, if didn't embrace it, you allowed it to happen and said nothing. And the, you know, you say nothing, then you're compliant in that. And this, it's it's a mess. And, and as you mentioned in the piece, it's going to cost us a lot of money for a long time to come here because all these aid packages that Mayor Watson's talked about and that the Prime Minister's talked about and the Premier Ford has talked about, we're paying for that. I mean, when the government 100. says we're going to make these guys good, that's our money.
1: Hundreds of millions of dollars that we are paying for. Uh, so, uh, you know, this isn't chump change, but I think the, the deeper issue is the misinformation that's out there. For heaven's yeah. sake, yesterday, the economist said that Trudeau should have negotiated with them. Like, negotiate with what? You know, like they were all over the map. They were asking for things that cannot be like the Senate and the governor general taking over. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know? Or a mean... vaccine ending vaccine mandates, which still exist in the United States. Like let's say we negotiated with them and got rid of all vaccine mandates. The United States hasn't removed them. And that's what this so-called truckers protest, this truckers convoy was about is to remove vaccine mandates. I mean, it was just, It was bizarro, and I think if there's, I mean, I have tried to put some facts and figures in front of people, but I think we are moving to a kind of evidence-free period of discontent, and I'm so worried about that, Bill, really. It's really, it seems to be really difficult for us to um, have our feet on the ground and roughly in the same sandbox when we fight one another. It's crazy.
0: Well, I guess the, the mantra of the day seems to be, uh, don't let the facts get in the way of my opinion. Uh, and and that's, right. you know, that's something that's been infecting us, I think, for about the last two years now. Anyway, I'm going to encourage you. We're just about out of time. Uh, it's, it's still on the website, the thestar.com. Uh, it's a fascinating piece, and I think it really puts in everything into perspective of what's happening here. And there's a lot more to come on that as uh, those, some of those numbers uh, come home to roost. Armin, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Really appreciate being invited, Bill. Take care.
0: You too. Armin Yalnizian, who is, of course, uh, an economist and Atkinson fellow on the future workers. And you can check that piece out on the Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, of course, the prime minister announced that he was revoking the Emergencies Act that had just passed through uh, Parliament hours before that. Uh, the rationalization is saying that, well, the emergency no longer exists and the justification for it. Uh, And at that same news conference, the Prime Minister mused that Canadians have learned lessons of the existence of people who are willing to flout the rules of democracy.
3: Attempts to undermine or even destabilize our democracy uh, are things that we will all need to lean in on as a country. But I certainly hope we're able to do that in a way that is thoughtful and inclusive.
0: Well, even though the uh, Emergencies Act may be gone and off the books for the time being, uh, the debate about uh, whether or not it should have been enacted and even the debate about the act itself, I guess, is going to continue for quite some time. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is uh, Nomi Claire Lazar, who is a full professor in public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa. She's also the author of the book Uh, States of Emergency in Liberal Democracies. Professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for your time today.
4: Thanks very much for the invitation.
0: Just as we were starting to learn a little bit more about the implications of the Emergencies Act, uh, bingo! It got yanked. Were you surprised by the announcement uh, that it happened so soon after Parliament finally dealt with this?
4: Uh, I was a little bit surprised, but uh, but it certainly did seem to be one way that that things could go, and and from what I can see, it was the right way.
0: Meaning so, to to withdraw the act.
4: That's right. So. Generally we think that uh, a public emergency is one where the existing uh, mechanisms the existing sort of safety functions like the police and you know functioning hospitals and all of this kind of thing are able uh, aren't able to handle it. So for example if there was an earthquake and the roads got all uh, you know, were destroyed and ambulances couldn't reach injured people, then that would be an emergency, whereas it might not be a public emergency if, you know, there's an earthquake and some people are injured and we and the ambulances and hospitals can handle it. So it's this idea of of exceeding the capacity of the normal uh, government services to, to handle a situation. So it does seem appropriate if, um, if we have both Ford with his conservative government and Trudeau with his liberal government, uh, you know, concurring, saying that they have information, from the police that they are now able to prevent the re-entrenchment of these, uh, uh, of these convoys. Uh, so if the police, the regular sort of safety service is now able to handle the situation, that's the mark that this is no longer a public emergency. Doesn't mean the situation has gone away. It doesn't mean we no longer have a problem, that we no longer have to be vigilant, but that would be the mark that this is no longer a public emergency.
0: Well, and, and that's the way I looked at it too, and I, I, I was very disappointed that so many people tried to make this into a partisan issue well if you support this that means you're you know you you like the liberals not necessarily uh, i i saw this as a group of people that were making their way across the country and finally got to the nation's capital and their stated purpose was to overthrow the government i mean make no mo- moans about that now that may not as you say be a physical uh, encumbrance like a fire or something or an earthquake uh, but when when our democratic Processes are, are being threatened by a group of people that want to get the governor general to kick the prime minister out. I don't know where they got that from, but anyway, uh, you've got to stand up and take notice of that, don't you?
4: You do. Uh, we do have to be a little bit careful because, of course, people can sure. say anything all the time, right? So people are always, you know, there are always going to be people who want to. Uh, who don't like our system of government, uh, who make threats, et cetera. And so we we have to make sure that we're distinguishing between the fact that someone has made a threat and uh, the possibility that that threat could actually be uh, viable. Uh, so, so just because someone is threatening doesn't make it an emergency. But if we see a situation where things are kind of Spiraling out of control, and there there is some chance that uh, uh, that it puts our institutions at risk. Then that then that would certainly uh, be an emergency. I'm not convinced that that was really the uh, you know the driving rationale here, at least in retrospect. And I do think that uh, that it is appropriate to sort of revise and revise how we understand what happened as more information becomes available. Uh, it does seem to be the case now that the emergency. Uh, at least the way Trudeau described it yesterday was really driven by just uh, getting the, these entrenched uh, uh, people out of entrenched positions. So away from the borders, not blocking, blocking trade, uh, away, you know, out, out of the, you know, no longer occupying Ottawa. And so the emergency wasn't so much our government is about to be overthrown, though certainly those threats were made, but rather uh, that uh, that we have these sort of immediate physical threats.
0: Well, yeah, such as cutting off commerce at the Ambassador Bridge, and the, you know, we saw the impact that was having economically, and, and you know, people's jobs and, and livelihoods are are in being threatened in situations like that. So th- there, there was something going on here, in the Alberta borders and the Manitoba borders as well. But let me ask you, because I know th- this is right into your wheelhouse, professor, about the act itself. Uh, and again, you know, people have said, well, it's just it's like the War Measures Act. It's not really. It's uh, this was enacted, as I recall, historically uh, by the Mulroney government because they thought the War Measures Act was too onerous. So they decided to take out many of the more controversial elements of this. And, and there are some checks and balances in here. But th- I, I guess the question that's going to be asked is there's going to be an awful lot of investigation into this is. The violation of human rights, and I know the Civil Liberties Association says they're going to continue with their legal action here, but would police have been able to do what they needed to do to choke this off had they not invoked this act, i.e. setting up a perimeter around the downtown and not allowing people in, uh, you know, and doing a number of other things, including some of the financial aspects. There was money coming in from from the other side of the border here. I, I know that the opposition parties wanted us to believe that there were existing laws that could have done that. I, I'm not an expert on that, but I don't know if there were or there weren't, but it wouldn't have been done in a timely fashion. So try to talk to us about exactly what is in the act and try uh, I, in, instead of some of the rhetoric that we've seen and, and, and taking the partisanship out of this.
4: Well, um, certainly there are provisions under the provincial state of emergency uh, to uh, limit uh, uh, movement uh, to make certain spaces no-go spaces, uh, and, but it it seems as though there were certain key things. At, at least you know the police are telling us now that there are certain key things that they could not do. Uh, for example, uh, the you know while it seems silly to invoke an emergencies act to make tow trucks tow trucks, it it's also a fact that uh, that those that those trucks did need to be towed, and at least the. The police are telling us that they could not do that without uh, without the power to compel uh, the the truckers. I do think I am most convinced by the financial measures, uh, and that is because uh, while we say uh, that a state of emergency should should you know we should only have emergency powers uh, that are strictly necessary and proportionate, so it 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 is also the case that we have to take it into account uh, the the possibility of violence. So if we were to say, look, there might have been a way. Uh, just a policing way to fix this. Yes, that's the case. But what if you know? But if there's a reasonable, uh, if, if if there's a reasonable chance that would result in violence, then maybe we don't want the, the the the. Then maybe we want another way. And I do think that the financial measures did have a big impact uh, in deterring people and getting people to leave in preventing people from joining and that that, uh, that in itself even if it wasn't the only way may have contributed to uh the, le- the you know to the to the fact that there was remarkably little force remarkably little violence not none but remarkably little so so having exactly. that deterrent there made the situation safer so maybe it wasn't the only way but maybe it was the safest way and that will all come out in the inquiry we hope
0: Uh, More to come on this, as they say in our business, uh, as the inquiries begin. Uh, Professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for this today.
4: Thanks so much for
0: having me. Have a good day. Take care now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about going back to work. Uh, I know many of us, of course, have been working remotely, well, some for upwards of two years now, and uh, a lot of us like it. Uh, We kind of like, I mean, there were some challenges initially, and we'll continue to be, I'm sure, but a lot of corporations and companies now have simply said, you know what, we, we can do this, uh, because there were a lot of preconceived notions about working remotely, but I think uh, a lot of those have been debunked, and uh, companies not just can be, but should be, uh, looking at how they can go forward uh, with a what we call hybrid model: Some people working from home remotely, others maybe even in a, a work environment, an office environment, whatever the case might be. Uh, well, the good folks at Deloitte have uh, done a report about this that uh, talks about uh, what can be done and should be done about this and uh to talk about this we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, stephen Herrington stephen is a partner with deloitte canada uh stephen first of all thanks so much for the the time today really appreciate it
3: Oh, well, thanks for having me
0: well uh, this is very timely uh, and and it's something that i think just about every business at some level has probably had conversations about and said okay what are we going to do and i know that you guys and a number of other agencies uh have approached this from a couple of different sides you've talked to the people like me who are working remotely and have been for some time and talking with the managerial folks at the other end of this. Uh, and, uh, I, I think one of the lines in this thing, Stephen, that jumps right out at me is, uh, we're not going back. I mean, you know, there may be opportunities and situations where they want to get everybody back into the workplace. But I, I think what's happened here, it has happened over the last two years, has probably changed the way in which we work and probably changed it, well, for the t- at least for the short time, but probably for the long time, I would think, too.
3: Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a bl- big believer in in scenarios. So, I, I, you know, there are scenarios where maybe uh, Canada doesn't embrace hybrid work, as, as people like to call it. to the the nth degree, but there are, to your point, really good signs right now that that's quite possible, that a lot of Canadians are going to get the opportunity, the autonomy and the trust to decide uh, where they work based on the work they're doing in a given day when the pandemic is over, hopefully just uh, just around the bend. Uh, 80% of Canadians that work from home during the pandemic reported they would like to continue to work from home the majority of the time when the pandemic is over. So the preference for workers is definitely there.
0: Well, let's talk about why, and and because I know when we started doing this, and like I say, for myself and many others, it's been a little over two years now since we've been going along this line. Uh, The biggest complaint and the biggest, uh, I think, obstacle anytime anybody ever talked about doing this, and this goes probably pre-pandemic too, Stephen, was productivity is going to just crash. I mean, nobody's going to work. They're going to be there watching TV. They're not going to be paying attention to their job. Uh, And I have talked to a number of different managers over the last little while about this, uh, who've had to adapt to this. Uh, that hasn't really been the case. As a matter of fact, many of them tell me that productivity has, if not maintained, it, it's actually increased because of these work environments.
3: Yeah. Well, you can look at the evidence in the market. Um, look what organizations were able to do um, across all industries. They were able to pivot to really difficult market conditions. And in many cases, maintain productivity and even adjust what they were doing for their customers in a matter of weeks. And a lot of that was thanks to the fact that people really did pitch in and continue to work even when they couldn't get into the office. You know, Think for an example, even of the, of the federal government that was able to roll out a universal benefit for people who were suffering through the pandemic in a matter of weeks, all while they couldn't go into the office. That, I think that's absolutely true. We've learned that we can actually get things done this way. Now, that's not to say this isn't without challenges. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's gonna have the opportunity to work from home when the pandemic's over. And a lot of that has to do with the type of work that people are doing. I am concerned about a, a have and have not market um, that could be emerging when the pandemic ends.
0: Are there any indications that that's already starting to develop?
3: Well, there are lots of indications that there are challenges with remote work. We know from before the pandemic that, for an example, women who participate in flexible work arrangements tend to have lower pay, stalled careers. And this is the first stat that I came across, do 33, 33% more unpaid work than men do. Um, you know, it, and we also have to pay attention to who can participate, even if they wanted to. Somewhere over 50% of Canadians who live outside of major metropolitan areas don't have high-speed internet. So they could as well be frozen out. You think about those rural and remote communities and the inclusion that we want to drive in our employment market. It means there are some things we need to do from a public policy perspective to make sure this is a fair employment market in the future.
0: I I guess one of the things that we realized uh, when we started doing this was uh the technology exists to to, to do this. I mean, you know, it's not as if we had to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, we had to adopt a lot of the technologies that we had already been using, in, in a, for instance, in a work environment or an office environment, and said, why not uh, do it remotely? And it, it, there's been working with this. I would think still the work to be done, in other words, if this is going to be the way going forward for some, uh, people in some of these these organizations, uh, there's going to have to be, I, I would think, uh, been a, a dedicated effort to try to improve that technology uh, to make sure that all the bumps uh, get out of the system.
3: Oh, I think there's going to be tremendous growth in what we call work technology, if you will, as a category over the next few years. Entrepreneurs know what's up. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot more interesting solutions coming. But as well, you know, employers have to think about how they're going to make hybrid work. So meaning... One of the, one of the uh, you know, I was going to say lucky, but that's terrible because it was pandemic uh, generated. But one of the things that was easier about the pandemic is that in a lot of cases, a whole workforce segment was all working from home. So they're experiencing exactly the same type of working at the same time. It's actually going to be very different when parts of the workforce are in the office and parts are not. There's a whole bunch of ways of working uh, and and rituals around meetings that are actually going to have to change to accommodate that, that mix of in the office and out of the office. So it's actually going to be, we're going to learn all over again, a whole new way of working over the next few months.
0: Okay, but how do you determine that? Who's, you know, the haves and the have nots? Uh, you know, sorry, uh, employee A, I, you can't work from home. Uh, you know, we want you in this work environment here. Employee B, certainly, if you want to do that. It, it, is that going to create, well, first of all, it's an uneven playing field, but could it create some animosity within the workforce?
3: Yeah, I think it's a new tension in the workforce. It has been through the pandemic. There, you know, there have been yeah. wonderful, brave folks who are going out every day on the front line um, s- serving Canadians and taking risks, and that's been a challenge already. I think one of the ways to think about it, one, you know, most of the organizations we work with are trying really hard to make sure that they're uh, allowing flexibility for the roles that will allow it. But where, of course, the job itself is tied to a location or the field, then that becomes much more difficult. But that doesn't mean that there can't be something for everyone. Um, you know, I was working with a client that w- that had folks who go out every day and do service in the field. And one of the things they looked at was instead of having the company truck at a depot and have people commute there to pick up their trucks in the order for the day, they were looking into whether or not they could just let those folks have their company truck in their driveway at home to skip the commute. So if we really think about the design of work differently, I think, and we play not just with where people work, but when and also how, we can make sure this is that there is something for everyone, and it, it doesn't become that that tale of the have and the have-nots.
0: What about support services? I know you touched on that in the report. Uh, well, the one that jumps to mind right off the bat, of course, is t- childcare. Uh, I mean, th- there's going to have to be some modifications. I would think in how those services are a available and b delivered uh, if we're going to be changing the the places in which we work.
3: Yeah, thank you. That's really the thrust of of, of what we were writing about most recently is. We need to think about the policy changes required for the employment market to make this all work for everyone. Caregiving is a great example. Canada's of course been investing a lot more in in affordable uh, childcare, but it still is with the assumption that childcare is between nine and five. And we may have a lot more Canadians that are seeking the flexibility to not work between nine and five. Uh, and we might need to think about how childcare needs to adjust. As an example, that's that's a perfect example amongst many.
0: Well, and you also talk about taxes, uh, and we're hitting that time of year anyway, since uh, you know it's it's almost tax time. Uh, but if we're working from home, the, the you know do we have to have this discussion? Probably should have this discussion uh, about income tax, about deductions, about uh, you know where you're working, uh, what you're allowed to 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 be able to deduct, uh, and and actually some of the expenses that might be incurred in situations like that. Uh, it may be not a mass revamping of the tax code, but at least a discussion about it to to accommodate people that are going to be changing the, the way in which they work.
3: Yeah, I think there are opportunities there. Um, and, and there's certainly you know, the easiest one to think about is that right now, the way your employer considers your tax is based based up, based on the tax code on where you work. It's based on your work location, which is assumed to be the office or, or plant that you travel to. Well if people are going to be working from home and they just happen to be their home happens to be in a different jurisdiction, either nearby or maybe somewhere else across the country, it can get complex for the employer from a tax perspective. And one of our worries is that complexity could discourage employers from thinking about offering jobs outside of their home jurisdiction. And, and by the way, the reason that's important, like if imagine we maximized this we could really distribute jobs coast to coast to coast in a way that wasn't possible before the pandemic. If you're in Sydney, Nova Scotia or Attawapiskat, it shouldn't matter. There, there will be, in this perfect future we're talking about, remote jobs, perfectly good ones, available, and you can stay right in your hometown. That's That's one of the reasons why we think we need to work on these policy levers to make sure that we can maximize this opportunity
0: and you talked about as you say accessibility to the internet and things of this nature i know every government's talking about that every time they do a throne speech uh but this is an ideal time for us to make a move i guess in that direction to be able to accommodate these uh these sorts of things that could be coming and give everybody the opportunity uh what about mobility a number of things i was writing down here as i was reading over the report last night Stephen. mobility within the workforce because i've uh, seen some studies that have indicated that an awful lot of people that are for instance working remotely right now are saying, look, at if my boss says I got to go back into the office, I quit. I I don't want to do that. Or I'm going to find another opportunity someplace else. Uh, Is this going to create a lot of, uh, not necessarily upward mobility, but even um, mobility from job to job for people wanting to find an opportunity that's going to say, yeah, I want that now. And these guys don't offer it anymore.
3: Yeah, I've been fond uh, over the last couple of months of saying, you know, everybody's familiar with the concept of the war for talent. And I think it certainly is on today. Uh, but I think that the the game has changed and employers uh, need to pay attention. I'm not sure that just paying more is going to win you the talent you need in those hard to find positions. I think the new war for talent is a war for quality, meaning people want quality in their job. They'll be more likely to go to a job that's more interesting, that has better purpose, that um, maybe has better hours or more flexibility. And, and maybe even if I'm going to predict the future, is it, jobs that have thought about wellness because you know one of the challenges we've seen through the pandemic is, although people have enjoyed flexibility, it hasn't really been a good story when it comes to the impact on their wellness and mental health. Uh, mental health, and a lot of that has been about work intensification. You you work from home, you you, you can find it hard to stop. <laughs> yeah. Um. And and that's that's a real challenge we need to pay attention to.
0: You're singing to the choir here. I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, you're, you're right in front of the computer. There's that email or hey, that's thing. hey, I could get this done now instead of later on. Uh, and it happens. I mean, I've talked to so many people that are in a situation like that. And it's it's hard to unplug sometimes. And I, I get that and the, uh, the stress that it can cause. Of course, the other side of that is, hey, you know, I don't have to commute. I don't have to get in the car and drive on the 401 to get to my job anymore. I can just do it from here. And um, that's saving me all kinds of stress. But you, the key phrase here, I guess, that you touched on, uh, Stephen, is work-life balance. And uh, I, we've probably, in the last two years, altered our perspective on just what that means, haven't we?
3: 100%. You know, Bill, if we were aliens from outer space and we watched the, the people of 2019 get in their vehicles all across a major metropolitan area like Toronto and commute to essentially the same place at the same time every day, we'd wonder what they were up to. Um, it was, you know, in a way it was a, it was a strange behavior. So there's a great deal of rationality behind the idea that as a society, we can, we can organize work differently for a whole bunch of benefits, including pressure on infrastructure and environment. Um, but, but it does, uh, to your point it, while it, it does in some ways help us seek that balance, we're closer to our families, we're closer to balance. It, there is this piece to solve for, which is what I call work intensification. I think about just for an example, the digital calendar that many of us live by. It was a great idea, but I wonder if it's time has passed and needs to be redesigned because what it tells people is that everybody's life is broken down into 30 minute increments that you can grab at a whim. And it's no wonder as a result. Our calendars are full and, and we find ourselves without the time to get down to the work that we actually need to do. So there's a bunch of little design challenges like that, if you will, that we could we could really put our minds to and design work differently for the future.
0: It's a thought-provoking report, and uh, and certainly I hope it's uh, going to provoke some of these conversations and, and be a catalyst for some of the conversations uh, as we uh, evolve, uh, which uh, I guess for a lot of us, we didn't think it was going to happen as quickly as it has. I know there was some discussion many years ago that, yeah, it, there'll come a day when people won't even have to go into the office environment. Well, it happened a lot sooner than we thought, didn't it?
3: Well, I in one of the initial papers I wrote in The Future of Work back in 2011, we found a cartoon from the 1950s which showed an individual looking at their television set with a microphone in front of them, and they were talking to Brazil from the United States. So the idea has been in our heads for a long time. It's fascinating how we can look at technology and actually quite reliably predict the future. What we often get wrong is when, but but we're usually pretty bang on in terms of what is going to happen.
0: Exactly. Stephen, uh, thanks again for the the great work that you guys at Deloitte have done to to bring this forward to us. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Stephen Harrington, partner with uh, Deloitte Canada. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.